This sermon, The Descent of Man, borrows its title from the infamous 1871 publication by Charles Darwin in which he applied his evolutionary theory that was first set forth in his 1859 on the origin of species to the human race in particular. In The Descent of Man, Darwin explores human evolution by means of sexual selection, a theory which says that natural selection, probably better known today as the survival of the fittest, cannot account for certain non-survival adaptations among the species, adaptations like beauty. For instance, why do peacocks, which have more eyes on their tail feathers, have more babies than those that don't? Sexual selection says that there are certain traits which, for whatever reason, the opposite sex seems to find more attractive. This means that the less attractive, less desirable traits are bred out of a species, while the more attractive, more desirable traits thrive. Now, while Darwin's theory remains controversial and was controversial when it was originally published... Darwin's cousin, for instance, Francis Galton, very quickly after its publication, applied Darwin's theory to the study of eugenics. It has contributed to the idea that man, by means of both natural and sexual selection, is getting bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, more beautiful, and in all ways, better. Darwin's book could just as easily have been called the ascent of man. Now this view of human evolution is antithetical to the biblical worldview, and not just because of its difference on the question of human origins. The Bible simply does not view mankind as getting better, at least not in a moral sense. Now there may be certain physical respects in which this is true, but it's not at all, at least not to me, obvious that this is due to a process of natural or sexual selection rather than the increase of the cumulative knowledge of mankind. In other words, it's without question that we live longer today than in generations past, but do we live longer today than, say, a thousand years ago because of a process of natural selection has bred out of our species certain traits which lead to shorter lifespans? Or do we live longer today than we did a thousand years ago because man's cumulative knowledge of the world has increased, leading to better nutrition, better health care, and better lifestyles which are more conducive to longer life? I would argue that man is not more innately intelligent today than we were a thousand years ago. In fact, I would suggest that we're less intelligent. And if you would look for some evidence of that fact, go pull a book off of the library shelf that was written about 250 years ago for the quote-unquote common man and see if you can make heads or tails of it. We are not more intelligent. 
Rather, what has happened is our cumulative knowledge has increased, and with it, technology and communication and the ability to share knowledge, and this has produced the illusion of increased intelligence. In other words, I doubt very much whether humanity is getting better. I think we're simply becoming more technologically advanced. But the question is, has our increased sophistication led to an evolution of our moral and ethical natures? Hardly. Our moral corruption has simply found more sophisticated outlets for its perversions. Rather than evolving our spiritual moral natures, that is our souls, seem to be exhibiting a distinct devolution, a slow and steady descent. This is the biblical evaluation. Mankind was created in a state of creaturely exaltation, crafted by the hand of God after the very image of God, endowed with a measure of the divine attributes of personality and morality and spirituality. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, a little lower than the angels God made us. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. When God formed us from the dust of the ground and breathed into us the breath of life, he crowned us with a dignity and an honor far above the rest of creation. We were were just a little lower than the angels. We were God's vice regents, reigning in glory over all that God had made. We were endued with intelligence and righteousness and justice. We were beautiful creatures and how far we have fallen. Now, rather than being a little lower than the angels, we seem intent on setting ourselves just a little above the beasts. Peter describes us in 2 Peter 2.12 as irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. We think like animals We act like animals, we kill like animals, we fornicate like animals, we invent philosophies which render us indistinct from animals. No, I would argue that man is most definitely not on the ascent. In fact, the history ever since the fall has been one long descent of man. Paul's purpose in Romans 1, 18 to 32 is to describe this descent of all mankind so as to explain the reason why we need the gospel which he's introduced in verses 16 and 17. I want you to note the link between verses 16 and 17 and verses 18 to 32 which follow. In verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. For faith, or from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And look at the very next word, beginning verse 18. For 
the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Look very, very closely. It's so important that you get this. At the link between verses 17 and verse 18, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in the gospel because or for the wrath of God against sin is being revealed from heaven. The gospel of salvation is for everyone. It's for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because the wrath of God is revealed against everyone, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The scope of the righteousness-revealing gospel is universal because the scope of the sin-inducing wrath is also universal. How did we get here? How did we fall from Psalm 8? How did we fall from this position of glory and honor just a little lower than the angelic beings to a people who grovel in the dirt, festering with the infection of sin? Well, this morning I want to look at this passage as a whole and trace the descent of man, looking at the essence of sin which brings the wrath of God upon us, to the expression of that wrath in giving mankind over to greater and greater degrees of sin. And then next week we're going to come back and we're going to look closely at the expression of sin which Paul sets forth as emblematic of sin's essence, namely homosexuality. That topic and its application to the church today warrants its own sermon, and we'll dedicate next week to it. Verses 21 to 32 contain a cyclical structure, which is repeated three times. Paul highlights the structure by the repetition of two verbs. The first is the verb exchanged. Look at verse 23. If you were a underliner in your Bible, now would be a good time to do so. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Look at verse 26. For their women exchanged natural relations for those which are contrary to nature. Three times, Paul repeats the verb exchanged. Three exchanges, and as we will see, they amount to the same grotesque exchange. In essence, they're all the same. The second verb that is repeated three times is the verb gave them up. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do you see the structure? They exchanged, so God gave them up. They exchanged, so God gave them up. They exchanged, so God gave them up. This giving up is what verse 18 is talking about. It is the present revelation of God's wrath from heaven. Now there is coming a day 
And Paul will talk about this in chapter 2 and verse 5. When God's wrath will be revealed in flaming fires of judgment upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But that future revelation is not what Paul has in mind here. Here he's speaking in the present tense. The wrath of God is presently being revealed in God's giving over mankind to increasingly debased depraved, defiling sin. Now, I'm going to make the case next week that contrary to what we hear a lot in churches today, homosexuality is not bringing the judgment of God upon our society. Rather, Paul makes the case that homosexuality is the judgment of God upon our society. And not only homosexuality... But every debased sin in which mankind engages, which Paul will describe in verses 29 to 31. Now, Romans 1, 18 to 32 is Paul's description of the descent of man. Paul sweeps all of humanity into this this dismal picture. This is evident from the all-inclusive nature of the sins which he lists at the end of the chapter. No one, in other words, is exempt from Paul's indictment, which we're going to study this morning. Particularly, though, Paul seems to have in mind the pagan Gentiles of the type who formed the sum and the substance substance of Roman culture, a culture which, by the way, is not terribly distinct from our American culture today. Then Paul is going to address the quote-unquote moral Gentiles, I think he has in mind the Athenian philosophers and those who follow them in the first half of of Romans chapter 2. And then he's going to turn his attention to the Jews who have the law but don't practice it in the second half of Romans 2 and the first half of Romans 3. Finally, in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, Paul is going to sum his, his indictment up by declaring that all mankind is unrighteous and is therefore under the righteous judgment of God. So let's begin this morning by examining the essence of sin, as Paul describes it in these verses. Based upon the the cyclical structure of this passage, I contend that Paul states sin's essence in verses 21 to 23, Then he states it again in verse 25, and then again in verse 28. So let's look at these three instances. The first instance, beginning in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, literally reptiles. They worshipped reptiles. Now, the essence of sin, in other words, is an exchange. It's, according to Paul, a grotesque exchange of the glory of the immortal incorruptible God for the glory of man and the corruptible things which man makes. So several points I want to note about this exchange. Number one, it is a conscious 
exchange. Now this point reaches back into last week's message on the general revelation of God in nature. Paul says without flinching, they knew God. They knew his eternal power and divine nature. They knew his glory. They knew these things through what he had made. They knew him and they traded him away consciously. Second, it's an irrevocable exchange. The result of their exchange of the glory of God, Paul says, is futility and foolishness, and darkness. When mankind turned away from the true light, it was left to walk in darkness and there was no way back. What was done was done. The blind can no longer see the light. This is preparing the way for Paul's gospel by telling us that the remedy, therefore, can't be found within mankind. It's got to come from outside mankind. Third, it is an absurd exchange. This is Paul's point in verse 24. They exchanged the incorruptible God for corruptible man. They exchanged the immortal creator for birds and beasts and lizards. Paul's talking about idolatry. The essence of all sin is an idolatrous exchange of the glory of the immortal God for something corruptible and mortal which God has made. It is God-making. It is the exchange of infinite, radiant glory for a finite, dim reflection, and it's damnable. Now, I can't help but see the fall of man in Genesis 3 in these verses. I think Adam and Eve are in the back of Paul's mind. Adam and Eve possessed the full, unveiled knowledge of the glory of the incorruptible God. They they witnessed it face to face. They experienced his eternal power and his divine nature day in and day out. They enjoyed his personal fellowship. But under the temptation of Satan, they reached for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a fruit which Genesis 3 describes as being good for food and a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. And they took and they ate. Now what had they done? According to Paul, they had exchanged the glory of God for the glory of man. Not content to live in the enjoyment of God's glory and his wisdom and his loving provision. They sought for that which would make them glorious and them wise and them powerful and them independent and no longer dependent upon God's provision. But they were deceived. And immediately they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Looking for life apart from God, they found only death. Now that original sin is emblematic of all sin. Every one of Adam's ancestors repeats his error. Indeed, we are born in this error. We live out this original sin by nature. 
We exchange the glory of the immortal God for the glory of mortal man and the things which man can make. We turn from the blazing glory of the sun and instead we fall in love with the flicker of a candle. This is the essence of sin. And we've all done it. It's turning from the love, trust, and enjoyment of God and his glory to idols. And make no mistake, these idols don't have to be physical things constructed out of wood and stone. According to Doug Moo, Paul is describing, quote, the terrible proclivity of all people to corrupt the knowledge of God they possess by making gods of their own. This tragic process of God-making continues apace in our day. And Paul's words have as much relevance for people who have made money or sex or fame their gods as for those who have carved idols out of wood and stone. All sin, your sin, my sin, is an attempt at God-making. It is a vain and futile attempt to achieve a glory that we can control. Now, Paul restates this grotesque exchange in verse 25, answering the question, why has God given all mankind over to moral degradation, which he stated in verse 24? He answers, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. What is the truth of God which they have exchanged and what is the lie which they have sought in return? It is, by the way, the lie, not a lie. Well, the truth is that which Paul says they knew and suppressed up in verse 18, namely that the Creator exists and that He's wise and powerful and glorious and that we were created to love and trust and enjoy and obey and worship Him. The lie is that greater glory and therefore greater joy may be found in created things rather than in the creator. So to return to earlier analogy, it's to turn away from from the blazing glory of the noonday sun and to look instead at the flickering of a candle. It's to turn from priceless treasure to pitiful trash. That's what idolatry does. But the exchange does not have to be trading away something infinitely good, namely God, for something inherently evil, like the worship of demons, which is what Paul says pagan idolatry is in 1 Corinthians 10, 19. Don't make the mistake of taking Romans chapter 1 and defining it as a sin which those people commit, those people who own and operate the Chinese restaurants in town who put up the the bronze statue of Buddha and they put fresh fruit on it every morning. Oh, Romans 1, Romans 1 is talking about them. Romans 1 is talking about you and me. It doesn't have to be the exchange of something infinitely good for something inherently evil like pagan idolatry. It can be turning from something infinitely good, namely God, to something which is also good, which God has made and ordained, like marriage, kids, financial security and independence, a good reputation and the praise of men, physical attractiveness, 
The exchange is still evil and it's still grotesque and it's still damning because when you prefer something created to the uncreated God, what you are declaring is that that created thing has the capacity to fulfill you and make you happier than the creator himself. You are saying something blasphemous about God when you take anything that's not God and exchange it for God. It's like exchanging the original handwritten manuscript of Macbeth for a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy that you buy for $3 in a used bookstore. It makes no sense. Now you begin to see why Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If those words fall upon your ears as harsh, it's because you don't see the world the way Jesus sees the world. In that text, Jesus is calling people out of the darkness and futility and foolishness of family idolatry, a darkness which suffocates American evangelicalism. If American evangelicals would spend less time focusing upon the family and more time focusing upon God, words like what Jesus says about about forsaking all of these things or else you're not worthy to him wouldn't fall upon our ears with such staggering force. It would be the natural conclusion of the godness of God. The truth is that God is infinitely glorious and he will make you infinitely happy. Indeed, he has created you to be infinitely happy in him. The lie is that some created thing, marriage, sex, children, money, or the worship of demons represented in idols of wood and stone has the capacity to bring you greater joy than does God. We were created to orbit around God who is infinitely glorious and infinitely wise and infinitely powerful and infinitely precious. And he is the only being in the universe with sufficient mass to hold everything else in the universe in orbit. What we've done is exchanged something else that's not God for God, which lacks sufficient mass, which is why C.S. Lewis said that when you get your loves in, 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 out of whack and when they become disordered, everything else becomes disordered and, and plummets into chaos. Nothing but God has sufficient weight, sufficient mass, sufficient glory to hold all of the universe and all of your life in its proper orbit. Paul reiterates the point one more time in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Literally, Paul says, and just as they did not discern To have God in knowledge, God gave them up to an undiscerning mind. In other words, just as they didn't think rightly about God, God gave them over to a mind that can't think rightly about anything. To acknowledge God amounts to the same thing as knowing God. But instead of honoring God as God and giving him thanks, they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Paul says they they knew certain things about God, 
They knew that he exists, that he's glorious and wise and powerful, and they knew that he deserves to be honored and worshiped as God, but instead, they acted as if they did not know these things. It's another example of the grotesque exchange which has taken place in humanity at large and in the hearts of every human being. And once again, as we will see, it brings about the wrath of God and with it devastating consequences. So, the essence of sin, all sin, your sin, my sin, consists in an exchange in which humanity as a whole and all men individually see the glory of God. Originally in Adam and Eve, they saw it face to face. Since then, every one of us has seen it painted on the fabric of creation. And instead of loving God and valuing God supremely, we've exchanged God for something created which we love and value supremely instead. As we have seen, it is a conscious exchange, it is an irrevocable exchange, and it is an absurd exchange. But above all, it is an evil exchange. And it is for this evil that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. But what form does this wrath take? It doesn't take the form that it will take on the last day when God will consume the wicked in the fires of his judgment. It doesn't look like sudden bursts of lightning bolting down from heaven and striking people where they stand. So what does it look like? We know that there is a future wrath, a coming wrath that will be swift and terrible on the day of judgment in which every evil will receive its due penalty and every sinner his just condemnation. Paul's going to speak about that in Romans 2.5. But the wrath of which Paul speaks here in Romans 1 is a present wrath and it takes the form of God's giving man over to increasing degrees of depravity. This is the descent of man, and it is the result of God's active, judicial, retributive wrath upon sinners. Remember the backdrop of this passage. Man was created in glory and honor, holding a position just a little lower than the angels. We were God's co-regents, his vice-regents, reigning and ruling over the whole of creation. The result of God's wrath upon our idolatry, according to Paul in Romans 1, is that man, God's image bearers, whom he created up here and crowned with glory and dignity and honor, now instead we wallow in the filth and the muck of sin, living far below our privilege and our position, acting like unreasoning animals. No longer a little lower than the angels, now we're just slightly above And Paul's going to say, slightly below the beasts. This descent is vividly illustrated by Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that? What did the son do? He exchanged his father's love and his father's fellowship for a bag of money and a life of freedom to live autonomously and do whatever he pleased. You know what he did? He reached for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But where did his so-called freedom lead him? It led him to a pigsty where he sat in pig filth 
and gnawed furtively on pig food. That is a picture of the present revelation of God's wrath. And lest we think that what we're about to read is simply cause and effect language, Paul's words here will not allow us to do so. Three times Paul says it. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Man's depravity, in other words, is not merely the natural outworking of his exchange of God. Man's depravity is the due punishment for man's idolatry. And it is inflicted by the active wrath of God as a foretaste of the coming wrath which will be poured out on the last day. This coming wrath will render mankind mired eternally in filth, weeping and gnashing their teeth like rabid dogs. This present wrath gives us a foretaste of what that eternal state will be like for the wicked. In other words, it is not that God simply abandons sinful man to float down the river of iniquity carried downstream by the current to the waterfalls of destruction. That's part of the picture. It's not all of the picture. In the words of Doug Moo, God not only takes his hand off of the boat and allows it to float downstream in the current of iniquity, he gives it, he gives it a push. In these verses, Paul paints a picture of the severe expressions of sin over to which God in his wrath has given mankind. There are three such expressions. Remember that threefold cyclical structure. And they seem to increase in intensity. The first is seen in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The first expression of sin is sexual immorality, which nearly always follows idolatry as An effect follows its cause. Three words in this verse point to the sexual nature of this sin. Lusts refers to a strong, passionate desire for a forbidden pleasure. Uncleanness is a term which the New Testament routinely unites with sexual immorality. Which is why the NIV just goes ahead and translates it sexual impurity. And the dishonoring or degrading of our bodies also points in that direction. We were created far above the rest of the beasts, which mate and procreate by mere instinct, like Darwin observed, just picking the prettiest, healthiest, most virile partners in order to produce the most offspring. That's how animals reproduce, and it's okay for them. We were created differently. Human sexuality was not designed that way. Human sexuality was designed to take place in the context of a covenant relationship which the Bible calls marriage. It was designed to produce not merely offspring but to create a home. It was designed to be the glue which holds that home together and the means of filling that home with little image bearers of God. But when we exchanged God for idols, God gave us over to act like beasts in terms of our sexuality. 
And now mankind does not unite in the beauty of the covenant sexual relationship like kings and queens of creation. Rather, we fornicate like beasts, dishonoring the bodies which God created for honor. This is the revelation of God's wrath upon our sin. Here, act like animals. But it gets worse. Because man exchanged the truth of God for the lie, God in his wrath gave us over to do things which not even the beasts do. This is Paul's point in verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Dishonorable passions. Meaning passions which are below the honor and the dignity with which God created man and woman. What are these dishonorable passions? Homoeroticism, homosexual desires, leading to homosexuality, homosexual practices. The words Paul uses here are not polite words. Men are burning in their lust for one another. They are committing shameful, indecent acts. Homosexuality was rampant in Paul's day, just as it is in ours, particularly among the elite ruling classes. Paul Jewett writes that Roman culture was characterized by a, quote, aggressive bisexuality. William Barclay claims that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. Pederasty and other forms of sexual exploitation were common in a culture in which upwards of 40% of the population were slaves. In other words, the Roman church did not have to look far to see the outworking of God's wrath upon their culture. Paul says that because of such depravity, they receive in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now, Paul does not specify as to what this due penalty which they receive in themselves is, and so we probably ought not to speculate either. But we will return to this topic next week to deal with the issue in more depth and to discuss what should be the church's response. And parenthetically, I would say that this may raise some interesting conversations between you and your kids, so I will leave it up to you as to what you do with them next week. But we're going to talk about this because we've got to talk about it because it is a, a present and rising crisis which confronts the church. Paul is not done, however. Not only does God reveal his wrath against idolatry, this grotesque exchange for the uncreated glory of God for created things by giving mankind over to act like animals in sexual immorality rather than in covenantal sexual union. And not only does God reveal his wrath against idolatry by giving us over to act worse than animals in unnatural sexual behaviors, but God reveals his wrath against our idolatry by giving our entire human society over to a debased mind and to utter depravity. That's the point of verses 28 to 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. 
They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. The litany of sins which Paul provides here, they don't don't exhibit a clear order other than they, they seem to be grammatically grouped into a set of four and a set of five and a set of twelve. Rather, they seem to present a a picture of the totality of human depravity and the societal chaos which it causes. What emerges is a condemnation of the entire race which God has given up in his wrath to a debased mind resulting in a society which, like Rome and like ours, is a swirling cesspool of sin. And the damning condemnation comes in verse 32. Once again, you see that there's, there's something that's known by man, which is then rejected. Paul says they, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, which I take to be all-encompassing, physical, spiritual, eternal death. That's what idolatry deserves. They know this, and they don't care. They not only give themselves over to iniquity, they normalize it. They encourage and they approve of others who do the same. They thumb their nose at the creator and they dare him to judge them. The entire race is complicit in this treason, this grotesque exchange of the glory of God for idols. And for our treason, the entire race will die. But for the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. So this has been a dark, depraved, depressing passage. But God has not left us without a glimmer of hope, without glimpses of light in the midst of the darkness. And it's with these that I want to close this morning. In actuality, there are two glimmers of light and there's one bursting ray of sunshine. So the question arises, if mankind is given over by the wrath of God to darkness and depravity, how would anyone ever see the light? Is there any hope for the sinners of Romans 1, 18 to 32? Is there any hope for idolaters like us? Is there any hope for men who think and act like beasts or even worse than beasts? Is there any hope for the fornicator, for the homosexual, for the God-hating pagan, for the child who's disobedient to his parents? Paul thought there was. You know, he said to the pagans in Lystra in Acts 14, in past generations, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
And to the Athenian philosophers on the Areopagus, Paul said that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel, and the word there means to, to grope in the darkness like a blind man, maybe feel their way towards him and find him. Even in the darkness, even in their depravity, God has left man a witness of himself. And in Romans 1, he mentions two. Look at verse 19 and notice the present tense verbs. I'll point them out to you. For what can be known about God is plain, not was plain, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been, and by implication, continue to be clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, God is still displaying his invisible attributes, his internal power and divine nature, and he does so to men upon the canvas of creation. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 19 said that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The sky above is proclaiming his handiwork. His handiwork. Day to day, they're pouring forth speech. Night to night, they're revealing knowledge. Any man, anywhere, at any time, can walk out of his house on a clear morning and observe the rising of the sun and know God exists. And any man, anywhere, at any time can walk out of his hut on a moonlit night and look up at the stars piercing through the darkness of the night sky and know God exists and he is wise and he is powerful and I ought to worship him. I take this to mean that deep down, perhaps covered by years of conscious and unconscious suppression of the truth, there is a knowledge of God in man. A knowledge that he exists, a knowledge that he created all of this, and by extension that he rules all of this by his divine power and wisdom. But then Paul adds another aspect to this innate knowledge with which all men possess in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They know God's righteous decree. Their conscience, says Paul in Romans 2, 14 to 16, bears witness to them of a divine standard of right and wrong, a standard to which they know that they will be held accountable on the day of judgment. They know what sin is, and they know that their sin is deserving of death from him. So buried deep within the heart and the mind of man is a spark. A knowledge of God as creator, ruler, lawgiver, and judge. Now this spark, hear me, is not sufficient to save, which is why missions exists. Because this knowledge cannot overcome the hostility of man's will towards God, Romans 8, 7. But it does provide a connection point in evangelism with everyone Everywhere, in every time. 
It means that there is not a person on the earth, not the most recalcitrant sinner, not the most hardened skeptic, not the most militant atheist, not the most degraded man or woman enslaved to his or her sexual perversions. No one is absent this knowledge of God. So when you share the gospel with them, when you speak to them of God as creator and ruler and lawgiver and judge, it connects with something found deep inside them. You're not speaking to them a foreign language. You're speaking to them a language which their heart knows, even though it may not have spoken it in years. This means that you begin every gospel conversation with an immediate point of relevance. They know God exists. I want you to think of the most hardened, wicked sinner you can think of. Bring them up into your mind. Some of us, we don't have to look very far. That person knows God exists. They know he is wise and powerful. They know they have failed to honor him as God and to give him thanks. They know they are accountable to him, and they know there is coming a day of judgment where the verdict rendered against them will be guilty death. That's why they're afraid to die. And that's the point at which you can tell them about Christ, who is the righteousness of God revealed. The substitute who died on the cross as a propitiation for sinners to vindicate the justice of God, to absorb the wrath of God so that it would be revealed on him and not upon us. The one who bestows his mercy and his righteousness apart from the law by grace through faith alone. And you can tell them that the creator God to whom they are accountable loves them and that he's provided for them a means of salvation in a way which does not violate his justice, but rather upholds it and demonstrates it by taking the wrath of God that was due to them and pouring it out on Christ at the cross, and by taking Christ's righteousness, which they did not earn and could never hope to achieve, and imputing it to them by faith and by faith alone, so that on the day of judgment, the judgment which their conscience affirms to them day in and day out awaits them on the other side of death, they can walk into that judgment clothed in the very righteousness of Christ, having all of their sins been atoned for at the cross, canceled out, the wrath of God not being revealed against them, but having been revealed against him him and it connects now they may suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness just like they've suppressed everything else but it's relevant to them i promise you you tell them that not only is god wise and powerful but he is gracious and kind and he will forgive all who come to his son in repentance and faith and receive from him the gift of righteousness and you tell them that maybe by God's grace and powerful wor- the powerful working of his spirit, the, the sun of righteousness will penetrate through the darkness of their mind and the futility of their heart, and it will find that last remaining vestige of the image of God buried within them, and it will radiate off of it like a mirror, and it will enlighten their mind, and it will enlighten their heart, and they'll find themselves having been born again. It's been known to happen, and it will happen Again, 